I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. He'll teach you everything. Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. Fun fact, the original opening for today's episode was about to be a vast me hearties. And and then I I I I don't know why I was gonna start that way. Hi, I'm John. This is John Helps You Write Better. Let's write better. A vast me hearties. What the fuck, John? Jesus. Okay. Okay, let's just get started. I thought today we could get a little technical and and talk about a, a writing term that I don't think I've ever brought up before. But it's something worth thinking about when you're down the road and you're looking at revisions and publication and stuff. And it stems from a conversation I had on last Friday uh, in the evening. I was talking to another editor about the typo comment. If you heard Monday's podcast, you know what I'm talking about. But that spawned sort of this offshoot conversation about editorial rules and editorial structure. And I mentioned a thing I have, a thing I recommended for clients, and it got a response that I wasn't expecting. I said something to the effect of, you know, when I'm working with a writer and I see them starting a paragraph, you know, three paragraphs or more in a row with a proper noun, whether that's a character name or a place name or something like that, and it just seems repetitive, I flag it and tell them to rewrite it. And it's often an indicator to me that if if you're doing it that frequently, just start the whole thing over again. And this got tremendous pushback because, oh, no, I never, so says the respondent, oh, no, I, I never mess with what they give me. Okay, on some level, you do. You're an editor. You, you have to. But they're talking about messing with the form in a way greater than correcting errors. So here's, here's the editorial philosophy. It's called preserved versus unpreserved. Preserved editorial philosophy says that the vast majority of what you produce as a writer needs to be left intact. You are, uh, as an editor, you are only eliminating or fixing problems. You know, so if you need to put a comma in, you put a comma in because it doesn't it doesn't exist presently, and it, it allows for the thought to stay the thought but be expressed in the way we perceive the writer to have intended the thought. Or you don't change the sentence they wrote because it's a messy sentence. You maybe flag it and go, hey, this sentence is unclear, rewrite it. Or, you know, you just leave it alone because your, your job is to just hunt and peck and scratch out the little, you know, the little stubby bits that aren't quite right. You're, you're smoothing them off. You're rounding off the edges because the whole point, according to the preserved philosophy, is to make sure that the writer is the writer is the writer 1,000 million percent just as they are. And there's... There's a time and place for that argument. There's a time and place for that way of thinking because it has some it has some merits. We'll talk about it in a second. But I want to tell you also about the other side of the coin, the unpreserved philosophy, which is where more and more I tend to sit now 
uh, in my later years as an editor. The unpreserved philosophy says that it's less about the specific text on the page and more about what the writer is trying to communicate. And sometimes a writer will make a mistake, not just an error like, hey, you need a comma, or no, that's not how you spell that word, but the writer will try to say a thing in a way intending X, but putting Y or Z or Q on the page, and it needs to be either flagged or wholesale rewritten, or a sentence needs to be added, or the sentence needs to be reconstructed, like what's the middle of the sentence now should become the beginning of the sentence, because the, the phrase sounds better. And it's more about, rather than keeping what's on the page as what's on the page, but getting to what the author is trying to best communicate and helping facilitate them and showing them how to get where they wanted to go based on what they wrote. The idea behind preserved versus unpreserved philosophy stems from the idea that the precious thing, the important thing, is either the words themselves, the expression, or the intent, what you're trying to say no matter how you say it. The preserved view says the words are most important because intent is variable. I wrote what I wrote, and I mean what I mean, and you better get it as a reader. That's the preserved philosophy. The unpreserved philosophy is I'm trying to talk to you about this thing. However, I can do that is what's good enough or what's successful or what works. So help me say the thing I'm trying to say. Words are not precious. They're not, um, they're, they're, they're malleable. We can change them. And this argument has persisted in editorial thought for about 300 years to some degree. Uh, might even be longer than that, but I'm aware that this, uh, debate of preserved versus unpreserved stems as far back as like theological scholarly research, where people get into a real argument about, well, this is what this religious text says, so we have to take the words as they are, and we derive a whole set of thoughts, feelings, complications, debates, etc., versus this is what the words are talking about, here's the intent, and we can take it off in this other direction. And you see the same sort of thing when you look at, you know, um, constitutional documents or legal documents where they say that the, the rule, the word is written like this, so it means this, and um, other people talk more interpretively about that. In publishing, the, the debate gets a little muddy because from a traditional publisher standpoint, they want the best product possible. So the method by which that product is created doesn't necessarily matter. They don't care if you are preserving the words as is or if you're trying to aim for intent or you're trying to do both because they just want the book out the door. Self-publishing does much the same thing, but they get a little bit more uh, antsy about it because, oh my God, you're changing my words. And, oh my God, you're, I didn't write that sentence. Oh, oh, you're ruining it. The strongest asset in the preserved philosophy is that when the writer is really on a roll, really engaging, really getting down the idea, and it's, it's clear and it, it doesn't need any, like, structural changes. You don't need to insert a comma. We don't need to, you know, remove this. It's, it's just as it is is great. You are really sort of validating the successfulness or the success, I should say, of the thing by not fucking with it. 
The strongest asset here is when the writer knows what the fuck they're doing and they're doing it really well and it's going along, you're reaffirming that. You're giving it a vote of confidence. Secondarily, there's a there's a, an added work benefit of doing the preserved method because you're not working very hard as an editor. We're just double checking. We're reading carefully and we're thinking, but we're not like making a bajillion fucking notes in the margin. We're not highlighting a ton of text. We are trying to let it just stay as is. This saves an enormous amount of, of time and space if I can do the job I do while leaving as little fingerprint as possible. And ultimately, it's great when the writer knows what they're doing because you there's not a lot of problems. It's delightful. We can all move on. The problem comes in with the preserved method when you run into a writer that just isn't clicking. It's just not there for them yet. The, the paragraphs, the pages, the chapters, whatever, need substantial work. And you there's only so much you can communicate by just highlighting a paragraph and being detailed in a comment about why this paragraph isn't working. At some point, it's better to roll your sleeves up and get in the trenches with the writer to sit down and go, okay, the word that's a problem in the sentence that's causing you this issue is this verb or this adjective or this preposition or this article. That that word is an issue. What are some examples? What, what are some ways? How can you get your idea across? And it requires a bit more conversational tone and it requires a bit more hands-on approach. And a lot of pres uh, preservation editors, that's what they're called, don't want to do that because it, uh, according to their thinking, reduces writer creativity if I'm flagging a thing and bringing it up. If I say, hey, is X, you know, this word not working, maybe it's not working for me versus it's going to work for 10 other people, we should leave it alone. And it's this strange sort of uncertainty principle of whether or not my observation of a thing affects the thing overall. And I, I used to, you get taught the preservation method. You get taught it because it's safe and dependable. And it is a, it is a way to guarantee that the writer's words aren't misinterpreted or misdefined because you're, you're leaving them as alone as much as possible. But the unpreserved, the non-preservation philosophy helps the writer, I believe, in a greater, more substantial way. Because the words are the issue in editing. The intent is the problem in editing. That's what we're fixing. We're using all our language skills, all our punctuation knowledge, all our understanding of construction and reception and receptivity and readability. We're doing that so that the picture from the text goes into the reader's brain. And yeah, I'm not saying that your car that you said was green on page two needs to now be a blue car because John likes blue better. I'm trying to communicate to you that by saying it's a green car, you're not being detailed enough. So if I flag green car and write in the margin, hey, this needs more detail, that's still on you. You still get to expand. You still get to do your job as a writer. There's also this greater idea, this, this weird holdover about the preciousness of text. The idea that, you know, it's sort of like the people who won't write in books they bought which I've also never understood um, that I bought a book and this is the way it's supposed to be. And it should be pristine. And if I write a note in a nonfiction book, like, Holy shit, I love this quote. 
or I highlight it so that I can put it in a newsletter or something, I've somehow ruined this text. And I've given, or I'm supposed to be giving this level of like sacred reverence to a thing I just fucking bought. I, I've never understood that. I bought it. I can do whatever the fuck I want with it. Am I, you know, somehow defaming or shaming or bringing, you know, dishonor to my, to my family if I use an old book to prop up a, a crooked table? Like, how dare you do that to the book? Do you think the book fucking minds? It's not a Muppet. It's not going to suddenly start, you know, flapping its hinge at me, you know, and telling me in a goofy voice, gosh, John, I really wish you didn't use me to fix that table. No, it's a fucking book. I'm going to use it because I need it for the moment. Or if I stack my, if I take my webcam and I need to raise it up so it can see my face, um, is it bad that I use my old, you know, college textbook for that because it's the right size? Again, the book doesn't give a shit. I can, I own it. I can use it how I want, right? Preciousness in, of text is different than preciousness in text. Preciousness in text is, hey, John, you're the editor. Get out of the fucking way and let the writer write the book. Preciousness of text is product-based. It's a thing that is a certain height. I can use it. It is a thing of a certain weight. I can use it to, you know, swat a bug. It, it's, it's not special. The, the work is special, but the work isn't the product. That is one of those fundamental philosophies inside the preserved and unpreserved editorial stance that doesn't really get talked about. The work you do is not just the text on the page. The work you do is the thought you had that transmutes into the text on the page. You thought it up. That's the hard part. That's the special thing. Whether you dictated it to me verbally or wrote it down ultimately matters in the sense of how I absorb the information. I'm either going to hear it with my ears or read it with my eyes. But either way, I'm still going to get the end result of I'm going to imagine the thing you're talking about. Preserved editorial style doesn't think like that. Preserved editorial style says something like, ah, oh, the words are on the page, that's the important thing. And they're conflating the effort of putting words on the page the task of writing fingers on keyboard with the depth of thought behind the words. And they're not the same thing. Editorially, I firmly believe that if the writer is trying to say X, Y, or Z, my job is to help them say X, Y, or Z by any means necessary, including but not limited to chopping up a sentence they wrote or adding in a word that I think they've omitted and then making a note of, hey, I think you need a the here or I think this would work better if you took these two words and put it over here and I've copied and pasted it to that effect. Because my ultimate goal in working with a writer, and I don't care what we're writing, I don't care what we're talking about in this example, but my ultimate goal is to get you, the writer, writing better. And if I can do that by showing you the words you're choosing in their best construction or showing you why a thing works the way that it does, then I've done my job. Words are precious in the sense that they're ideas, but once they hit the page, they are fair game to get used, manipulated, and affected. I'm, I'm not bothered by the other editorial stance. I used to be. I used to draw a line in the sand, and I'll be willing to throw down with anybody. But now I'm, I'm old and I'm tired, so no, that's not my thing anymore. But I, I always sort of tilt my head a little like a dog listening to a weird sound, I tilt my head a little whenever somebody's like, no, I can't change what they say. 
what the fuck are you doing in your job? Like, you got to change what they say. That's your job. Not change it into what you want it to be. Not change it into what it isn't. But you got to fix their shit. Like, it's what we do. We're there to facilitate their growth and expansion and their development. We're there to help them get across what they want to say. Sometimes they're imperfect in saying it, and it's our job to help. Or not, I guess. Don't get hung up on words being precious. Don't get hung up on books being sacred. Don't get hung up on how you do what you do. Don't get hung up on these these debates. While they're interesting, they don't, they don't alleviate you of the responsibility of, hey, you have to make some decisions and then get some words on the page, please. This is just editorial philosophy. It's a little peek behind the curtain, maybe in a direction or at a perspective you never thought of before. It's something worth knowing. It's at least an interesting point to bring up at a cocktail party. Um, I don't know if it'll you know, change the world for you, but it's, it's certainly something that makes a difference on this side of the writer-editor-production-development relationship. Give that some thought. I'll talk to you tomorrow.